All right, good morning, City Church. All right, that's all right, that's all right. Well, hey, we're glad that you guys are here with us today. Uh, thanks for being in person. Thanks for being online. Uh, uh, I am going to uh, do like a prequel to the sermon. So, uh, uh, for just a moment, first of all, let me just tell you guys something. Uh, several weeks ago, our soundboard, uh, uh, we use a digital board in a digital age, of course, and uh, the, the, basically the memory inside of it corrupted. And so, we placed an order for a new board uh, out of necessity, and like everything else in the world right now, uh, it was on back order, shortages, and so forth. I think five weeks now, uh, the, the, the production team, specifically whoever's running sound, has been having to run sound uh, from scratch. Not so like on an old soundboard back in the day, you'd get all your settings set and then all you had to do was come in and tweak them, right? Well, this was, this was not like that. Everything, every time the power, the power went out on the board, everything went completely to zero. Every EQ, every fader, everything. So every single week for weeks now, they have been having to fine tune service on the fly. We finally got the replacement board in and uh, so they've done a great job. Today's our first day with it and they're just back there. So if you hear any fluctuations happening, uh, it's probably more noticeable while I'm preaching than it is with the band, uh, but it's just because they're trying to get everything worked out on that. So thank you for being patient. So um, before we dive into of Second Corinthians, uh, Maybe I'm doing a little twist and, you know, I don't know. All right. So uh, we're going to uh, start by, uh, I want to, actually, is it, uh, I want to address some things. So can we get my first slide up, which should be in 2 Samuel, and then I can click forward from there. Here we go. Or 1 Samuel, I mean. All right. So watch this for just a moment, okay? So I like to give some context sometimes to the thing, why I do the things that I do, right? So here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So just a little bit of back context. Israel says, we want a government that looks like our enemy's government. Right? Why do I say our enemy's government? Well, all the nations that surrounded Israel at that time hated Israel. And they all had kings and they all had these type of uh, governments in which everyone basically was subjected to this royalty. And so Israel said, well, maybe if we're more like them, we will have it easier. They will, they will treat us better. And so uh, God tells Samuel, the prophet, he says, you go and tell them that, that we're going to do this, but give them this warning, right? He goes on in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so the the warning that Samuel is giving is that if you're going to have the type of government that you're asking for, you're going to have the consequences of that government, right? Like this is a a cause and effect. I'm just warning you that this is what happens. So when, when the United States was founded, it is so different. You, 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 I I just, I, I, I don't know how to to help you understand, like you, you cannot compare the United States to other nations because other nations, like even like take Canada, for instance, right above us, right? Canada was a nation subjected to another nation. So its founding was all from that influence of, a, of a, another monarchy, okay? When you look at the United States, the United States, the people said, we're cutting all of that off and we're going to start from scratch, that's, that's why it's so unique, okay? All right? Now, I say from scratch because the founding fathers were, for the most part, either believers or they understood the effectiveness of the faith. And so as they began to build out the manner in which this nation would operate, they understood that governments will always reach beyond their established role. This is... This is, this is historical. Like, this, isn't, this isn't a debate, right? More government is not progress, it's regress. More government is what every society in the history of the world has ever done. We need more people making more rules, telling more people what they are to do. All right? right? And that removes the voice from the people. Now... The biblical model that we have in Scripture is that God wants to be our king. He wants to be the one that is the, the, the one that we turn to, right? And that we are his mouthpiece, right? So in, in, in such that we would have rights, that we would be able to use our voice, but our voice would be a reflection of his nature, of his word. Now, here's, here's the reason I'm diving into this is because we see government discussions in Scripture, right? Let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, this is following the birth of Christ, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then, skipping to verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Why do you think Matthew puts this in there, right? What do you think it is that he's communicating about Herod? He is talking about a political leader who is using the authority that he has to do what he believes is best, right? I mean, if we go all the way back to Egypt, when we are talking about the children of Israel, the the Hebrew people were enslaved, right? 
They did not want to, uh, uh, re- they, they enslaved the Hebrew people because they were afraid of the Hebrew people, right? So do you think that there were these conversations going on with Pharaoh and, and his leaders that they were just sitting around going like, oh, what's the meanest thing we can do today? Oh, we'll do this thing because it's really mean. <laughs> no, that's not what was going on. They legitimately feared for their own uh, capacities. They believed that the Hebrew people, for whatever reason, something was happening, blessing was on them, and we've got to stop it because they're going to be more of them than there are of us. And so they operated themselves out of fear by doing what? Turning them into slaves, right? We get over here. Herod does what? Herod is afraid that his power is going to be taken from him, and so therefore he sends word out to have all of the newborn males murdered. Matthew 27, verse 1, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. What do they do? They go to the government. They go to the government that's in charge, and they want the government to step in and fix their what? Their religion issue right? Their issue with religion. They go to the government. Watch Pilate's response in the end here in verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So he says, I find nothing wrong with Jesus, right? But it is a custom for me to release one unto you. Why don't we just go ahead? This guy's innocent. Let's let him go. And what do they scream, right? And I got to be honest, like I know I, I, I poked the bear really often. But man, I got to think like with fists raised, they're screaming in a riot, give us Barabbas. Give us what? Give us the, the man that is guilty and keep the man that is innocent. So here's the thing is that there was a deception. We have to be aware of the fact that deception is a reality. It happens, right? Verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So we see an example of a a politician, somebody in government, reacting in a way that they knew was wrong, but they did it because why? Because people were rioting, right? Biblical model here for us to look at of how the behavior of a group of people can greatly influence the decisions of politicians. We get into Revelation. We just finished a series on prophecy, and Revelation speaks at great detail about the coming politics of our world. Now, there is just this constant argument from believers that the church should stay out of politics. You shouldn't talk about it from the platform. It's not a biblical model. It's not a biblical model. It is perfectly fine as long as we are staying true to the Word of God, right? So, in 1973, Roe v. Wade went before the Supreme Court. There's a lot of mis- and disinformation going on right now, so I just want to cover a few basic facts, okay? All right? 1973, it goes before, and it is is, uh, set as 
precedent, right, that the, uh, that the states will no longer have the right to have any say toward legal. I can move to a handheld if you want to get one ready for me. All right. Those uh, judges that voted to do this were, and I made a list of them here, and I, I want to point out that uh, there are people right now who are All right, how's that? Okay, so there are those that are saying that the only reason this happened is because one president had the authority to put three Supreme Court justices in place. I, I just, I kept hearing that. I kept hearing that, and so I just went and looked it up, and I was shocked to find that three of the Supreme Court justices that voted in favor of this were put on the court by one president. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, inconsistency of logic when uh, there's so often an inconsistency at the use of logic, right? People do not take time to know what it is that they're talking about. Now, the argument that the, that the justices made was based off of, the, off, off of the 14th Amendment, okay? Um, I don't know if y'all can hear it, but there's like a really weird, like, subby thing maybe happening in my voice. All right, that line from the 14th Amendment that they use, or the paragraph, I just want to read it to you word for word. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, okay? So, the overturning of Roe was simply a decision that the 14th Amendment was not written to give any instruction in regards to abortion, so this was not a group of people who came out and said, we don't like abortion, so we're going to just make this decision. The problem with the 14th Amendment being used to justify uh, the federal uh, position on abortion is that when it was written, almost unanimously, every jurisdiction in the United States had outlawed abortion in the 1800s. Okay, so yes, abortion was something that people were looking at and discussing and having conversations on. So when the 14th Amendment was presented and put out, not only was it illegal, but the 14th Amendment had nothing to do with the conversation that brought forth the 14th Amendment. So the Supreme Court, when they are looking at the Constitution, they are supposed to be looking at the intent of the authors. When this was written, when it was accepted, why was it written and why was it accepted? And so the Supreme Court justices, hearing this case, looked at it and said, this is not the way by which we should be establishing this precedent. And so they overturned that precedent. Today, right, the conversation has turned to fear. What is the fear? Well, the fear is that uh, we have somehow walked backwards as a people, right? We have world leaders in other parts of the world who are standing up 
telling their nations, oh, don't worry, we would never do something like the United States of America, right? Well, I would say that is probably true, and it is the reason why Americans experience such freedom, and it's why the people in your nations want to come and live in the United States of America, because we have a checks and balances that should always be pushing it back to the people, which is where this debate should be, is among the people, specifically among the states. And fear, telling people, uh, you know, that all of a sudden we're going to see some massive number of illegal abortions and therefore people are going to be dying at numbers we just can't imagine. It's just not, it's just simply not true, right? The number of deaths per capita from legalized abortion to the numbers of deaths in, under illegal abortion are basically the same. It's really hard to get an exact number on it because a lot of states, like the state of California, they, are not, they don't even have to mandate when they perform an abortion. So an abortion clinic doesn't even have to say, we performed an abortion today, they don't have, today we don't have to give any details on it, all right? But the numbers that we do have suggest that the, the mortality rates are almost identical whether it is legal or illegal. Now, some are angry and some are rejoicing. And I want to tell you today that we are not rejoicing at the grief of others. I am not here to look at those who are hurting and say, good, I'm glad they're hurting. Listen, they're, de- I, they're deceived, right? They don't have all the information, right? And so for that, I feel sorry for them. I want them to be able to see the value of life, and what science now, right, is supporting, and that is that that is a life that is in there, okay? So since 1980, there's been over 1.65 billion abortions worldwide, and just yesterday alone, 109,000 abortions, all right? That's, that's a lot of lives when we think about it. In the United States of America, more than 80% of women post-abortion say they did not receive adequate counseling before making the decision. One of the reasons, and this is from people who have been inside of Planned Parenthood, who is the largest provider of abortions in the United States, one of the reasons why that is, is because they don't make money if the woman does not have an abortion. And so they incentivize directors with bonuses if they convince a woman to have an abortion. So it is the same mindset at a car lot that says convince them to buy the car no matter what. Get them to buy it and sign it and you'll get the bonus. 80% of women say they were rushed, they were not given adequate counseling. And this is is really, the the next statistic is the one that just, again, breaks so much logic. More than 60% of women post-abortion say they were pressured to have an abortion by a man. And we talk about how this takes away women's rights, but if we slow down the abortion conversation, what we are doing is, is hopefully giving women the opportunity to think for themselves instead of having a man standing over their shoulder pressuring them to go and take this life. The argument that has me the most upset, though, is the one that says that this will disproportionately impact and affect minorities or poor communities. Let me tell you something. Trying to say that somebody cannot be a good mom or dad because they are a minority or they are poor is ridiculous. It is insulting. 
And how many people do we know that, that, that today have climbed out of poverty, right? Right? That now are leaders among us. Does that, does that mean that it might be more difficult for somebody in that position? Yeah, it might be more difficult, but if we were to shift the resources that we give to these clinics, right, over to helping families, maybe more of them would climb out of poverty than are kept in it. Now, I'm going to go and tell you something firsthand. When Zoe was born, we had a million dollars in medical bills. We did not have the funds for that. He, he qualified for Social Security. Social Security stepped in and paid off that debt. That was a miracle for us, right? So I was on staff as a youth pastor. I felt the call to move to Savannah and plant a church. And so Zoe was receiving funds, aid at the time, and I quit working as a youth pastor, making barely any money, and started a business making no money. And immediately was sent a bill from the government to back pay Social Security. So I went to the Social Security office with my wife. And, I, and we walked into the, to the office and we were like, what is going on? I make less money now than I did before. And she got up and shut the door and she said to us, she said, we will make this go away. But you need to understand that anytime you are trying to better your life, the uh, benefits will be taken from you. And they see you starting a business as a manner of trying to, trying to better your life. This government is not for you. That's why it has to be limited. And that is a biblical model. It is okay for Christians to have this conversation because the word of God has this conversation. Now, I want to say that the reason that we are where we're at today is because of organizations like Thrive, pregnancy centers all over the country, and they deserve the, the thanks and the praise right now because I got to tell you, the lady that started Thrive, uh, Paula, here in Savannah, she is a tenacious woman, right? I mean, she is, she's like that, uh, that, that pit bull that once its teeth have come down, it is not letting go. And uh, she has been fighting for women to be able to know what is happening in their body. And they came together and they started Thrive. And let me tell you what they do. They offer completely free women's health care. The only thing that they don't do is they do not perform abortions and they do not help people transition. Those are two things that Planned Parenthood makes tons of money off of. They also do something that Planned Parenthood does not do, and that is they offer post-abortion health care. Once you have had your abortion, you are done. They do not want to see you anymore. Thrive Women's Health Care meets with women who have made that decision and helps them through because many of them have health issues following it. Now, I want to say this, and I want to say it because every time we talk about life, I'm, I'm reminded, I understand that some people at some point in their lives have made the decision to have abortions, and maybe some of you are sitting in this room or you're hearing this online right now. Can, can I tell you something? We serve a God that is, is faithful. He's loving. He's filled with grace and compassion. We know that he forgives. Here's what I'm not doing. I'm not condemning you, right? I want you to feel empowered. You have a testimony. You have a firsthand experience that I do not have and I will never have, no matter how many memes are put out there. I am not having a baby. 
And it's just the reality of the situation. So you have a voice. This is one of the reasons why we talked about the fact that I'm going to be addressing this and should, should Carmen and Kayla talk about it? I said, absolutely. As a pastor, I have a responsibility. As a, as a woman, you have the right and the opportunity. So we'll both get up and talk about it. And so here's what we need right now. Listen, let me tell you something. Just so you know, our church, uh, uh, our elders decided this year, we didn't know any of this. But we decided to stretch ourselves, and we give $1,000 a month. This, this church does. We give $1,000 a month to that pregnancy center. And they need it. They need it. Let me tell you, strategically, they are directly across the street from Planned Parenthood. They are right across the street. They are seeing, they are over, Friday, they were overwhelmed. She told me that the nurses were pretty upset because there were so many women coming in to thrive with questions that they just could not see them all, right, in their little space. So they need volunteers, and it's a stressful environment. And sometimes people go over and they serve and they go, this is too stressful or I don't like the way they do this. Let me just remind you that even in the midst of that sometimes, right, these, these young ladies, 799 salvations, they need to have a woman there that can love and nurture them. And so there's an opportunity there for ladies. There's opportunity for men. There's an opportunity to invest financially. You can go to Thrive Women's Health, give online directly to the cause. Um, we have brochures and uh, information out at the connection desk. Uh, I'll tell you that um, when you're in the hiring process, there are all of these HR regulations. You're not allowed to ask people certain things, you know. Uh, and so uh, when we were uh, hiring a worship leader, uh, it was, we were informed that it was illegal to ask uh, whether or not they were pro-life or pro-choice. Now, I know you, what you would think. I know what you would think. You'd go, oh, well, they're wanting to go into full-time ministry. They're definitely pro-life. You would be completely wrong. Um, and so I think we did like 40 interviews, and, 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 and what we discovered is, is that we can't ask them, but we can tell them where we stand. And uh, so we were in an interview process, and at the end of the interview process, I would always say, hey, listen, I want to make sure that you understand a few things that uh, are a part of our identity. So we believe the Bible through and through, and we're going to preach the Bible through and through, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it challenges the way that we're living, we're going to be a part of that conversation. We are always going to be on the side of supporting life and the right to life, right? We're going to have that conversation. And you will not, I'm telling you, one guy immediately interrupted me and goes, oh, no, 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 no. I absolutely don't want anything to do with somebody, with an organization, with a church that would uh, uh, be against abortion, right? Okay, great. Thank you. And so just in case you were wondering, Michael and Kayla, well, Michael, technically, uh, in the initial interview, uh, you know, he started dancing and clapping, and he had a tambourine. I was nervous, I'm not going to say. I mean, he started singing Christmas songs. It was weird. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, 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 uh, I saw a, a little clip of a congressional hearing recently, and I'll end with this thought, and then I'm going to preach a sermon. Um, and uh, there was a lady, and she was advocating for right to life, and the congressman said that he was disgusted that, uh, at her stand, and he brought up rape and incest. And she waited till he got done, and she just said, okay, so will you work with me to write up legislation 
that makes abortion illegal except in the case of rape and incest. And he literally said, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not having that conversation. Well, if that's, the, if that's the conversation, let's have the conversation, right? Okay, when abortion was presented to this nation, it was safe, rare, right? Today, it's on demand. Today, it is at a whim, at a decision. And unfortunately, the, 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 we do not talk about self-control. We don't talk about self-control when it comes to the use of alcohol, when it comes to sex, when it comes to the way we spend. We are in debt with credit cards and vehicles and things we can't pay for. We do not talk about self-control in this nation. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so as Christians, with the Spirit of God living inside of us, we can be advocates for self-control, right? And we can also, when we make mistakes, we can rally together and walk through the hardship that comes on the other side. That's what we should be doing. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's stand to our feet for the reading of the Word as we get into 2 Corinthians. We're going to be beginning in verse 8, and uh, here we go. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we, were, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely, to make us re rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that we that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our benefit on our behalf. For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our, uh, of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand." just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also 
put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. I pray that as we are taking time to reflect on it today, that you would speak to us. May your spirit be manifest in our individual lives. May we be encouraged. May we also be challenged in your mighty name. Amen. You can be seated. So, Paul is addressing a group of believers that are divided. And I told my wife, I said, it's crazy how we lay out so much of this a year in advance, and then we end up having conversations that are so timely. But he has a church, right, that he's writing to, and the believers inside of the church are divided on what they believe. They say, well, I am a believer, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Christ, but I reject this teaching, and others are saying, I accept this teaching. And so Paul now is trying to address this divide. Um, in order to do this today, I have to take time to define the terms as we go. Uh, I'm, I'm really big on this, right? I'm, I always want to have the conversation. Uh, if we can't define the terms, then we might be having different conversations. So we have to take time to define what it is that's being said. And it's pretty significant, the language that Paul is using here. Uh, so we'll begin here in verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, right? Unaware, what does that mean? It is to be ignorant, to not know and sometimes willfully. So in the Greek, this word can, can, can talk about an ignorance that is intentional and an ignorance that is unintentional. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier. But it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. If you want to be ignorant to the Word of God and not look at what is being taught on how you are to live, then you could claim yourself a Christian and believe any other ideology or social contagion or whatever else is out there. You can buy into all of it if you are willfully ignorant. So he says that you are unaware, brothers, of the affliction. And this is a, a really a strong word for him to use, right? It is persecution. It is distress. He says, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired. What is that? To be without resource. He says that we despaired of life itself. We felt like life was at an end. There were no resources that we thought would help us to be able to move to the next day. So he says, we were in a place... Of, 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 of hardship. We were in a place of real difficulty. So Paul's going to be addressing them, addressing their division, and he says, listen, we have been in a place of real hardship, so much so that we did not know how we could go on living. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely. And again, this idea of making, it's in order that. What does he say? He says that we got to this place where we felt like there was no hope, where everything was falling apart, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
So we got to a place where we felt like the only option was death, and that made us rely on the one that has command over death. These are, this, is a, this is a really good parallel that he's making, but he's also telling us that God is okay with you experiencing difficulty. God is okay with us walking through difficult situations. This is something that we are not okay with, right? And so if we talk about the government, if we talk about legislation, if we talk about the way we live our lives, we are constantly trying to figure out how we can live life without having to walk through difficulty, without having to walk through consequences, or without having to walk through uh, difficult emotions. Paul says we were at a place where we felt like we were dying, That was the only option that was there, but God allowed that to happen so that we could rely on the one that has command over death. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. So what does He say? He says, He has delivered you. He is delivering you. He will deliver you. This is the thing about the Christian faith, is that even though you're walking through a very difficult situation, there is the hope and the guarantee that He is with you, and He will see you through, because He commands all things. So he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, when you pray for those that are in the trenches, you get to give thanks when God shows up. So you may not yourself be the one in the trenches, but you should be praying for those that are in the trenches, those that are fighting for what's right, those that are, that are laying their lives down in such a way, right, that they are willing to risk persecution, they are willing to risk violence for the cause, and you may not be in that place, you may not be called to be where Paul was facing death, But what you can do is be praying for those who are in the midst of it, those that are pulling through a very difficult season. And when you do, you get to participate in the rejoicing of the fruit from that, the thanksgiving that comes on the other side. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. Testimony, that means something with evidence, right? Something with evidence. It's, it's incredible to me how many times people want to show up with no evidence, but they just tell you how it is. And you say, okay, show me that, right? Uh, I, I'll use the example of uh, um, somebody telling me that, that the only responsibility Christians have is to love, that we should never create conflict, and that we should only ever just support people around us, right? And I said, hey, very interesting thought. Can you give me some, some biblical proof for this, right? And the response back was, why would you want biblical proof for this, right? Isn't Jesus love? That's all you need to know, right? And you have to remind people that Jesus also said, what, did you think that I came to bring peace? No, I came to divide, right? Love is not, and I say this all the time, love is not merely acceptance, right? That can be a great form of hate, to just simply accept what's going on around you. Love is about truth and what is best. 
right? So he says, he says, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Sincerity, this is clearness, purity, right? Not by earthly wisdom, that is insight or intelligence. So he said, it doesn't matter how smart you are based on what the world is saying. And this word earthly uh, translates in a lot of versions to be fleshly, right? So just basically being like the insight, right? The intelligence of man, what man is teaching, okay? He says that wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. And so the grace of God, it supersedes, right, what we come up with on our own. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. And this is really important. He says that if it does not align with the word of it, with the word it's not from God. If somebody comes and says, "Hey, I am a pastor, I am a teacher, I'm an evangelist, I'm an apostle, and the things that they're saying do not line up with the text, right? Then they are not speaking on behalf of God." And Paul says, he says cuz Paul's very clear in his understanding, he knows that there are other people who are teaching other gospels. And he tells them, he says, look, we've been in a place of real persecution and death, uh, near, near, near death, and, and let me tell you, the words that we preach to you, just like the words that we preach everywhere we go, and that have even made us subject to that type of hopelessness when it comes to the world, have always been in line with what is in the Word of God. Now, I will also point out, and I do this regularly, when Paul is talking about the Word of God, he is not talking about letters that have yet to be written. He is talking about what we refer to as the Old Testament. So there is tremendous value in understanding the Old Testament. The Old Testament is something that we should be reading and understanding, and the New Testament is in harmony with the Old Testament. They are not at odds with one another. Verse 14, just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. This idea of partially is really referencing the fact that Paul is aware that the church is divided, right? That many are attending the church, but they are rejecting the truth. Paul has presented the gospel. He has told them that if anyone's presenting a gospel other than this, okay, then they are wrong. And people are hearing these other ideas, and he addresses this in 1 Corinthians, right? Because what's going on, and it's so relevant to today, is that there are a group of people in the church that, that think, oh, I just want my friends and family outside the church to feel comfortable here, Right? And they don't, they're not ready to change. They're not ready to be different. They're not ready to have somebody tell them that there is a way to live your life. And so what we need to do is just soften the message and not put any expectations out there. And Paul, he begins that going like, like you guys have gotten to this place where now you have a young man who is sleeping with his father's wife and you aren't doing anything about that. You're not saying anything about that. You're not calling him out for that. So Paul is aware that this idea has created a division within the church in Corinth. Now, today, what do we do? We just, that division separates, and they go down the street and start a different church, right? And that wasn't the way that they did it. They didn't have enough people, probably. That methodology had not birthed into anyone's mind at the time. And so they were all showing up, claiming to be followers of Christ, but they were believing different gospels. 
Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace, meaning that I came to you, I presented the gospel. The grace is not from me, it's from God, right? So when I presented the gospel, you had an opportunity at receiving grace. Some of you accepted that. Some of you have denied that right? So I want to come to you, right, before I go do anything else. For what purpose? So that you can have a second opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, that's good news. That means that if you've rejected the gospel in the past, that today you can receive the gospel. Rejecting the gospel is not a once and for all thing. Being distorted or perverted in your view of the gospel is not a once and forever thing for you in this life. No, you can turn your heart you can change the way that you view the world, you, the way that you view the Word of God. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So he says, like, I find such value in this. I wanted to come and see you before I go to Macedonia. I wanted to go to Macedonia and I wanted to come back to you. Now, what do we know? We know that like when he writes to the church in Rome, he hasn't even been able to get to the church in Rome at that point. So Paul's time is very coveted. All these churches, they want Paul to come. But Paul says, there's something going on here. There's a stirring in my heart. I want to be where you are at. So I want to come on my way, and I want to come as I am leaving back to you. He says, was I vacillating? And this word vacillating, I didn't make a slide for it, but it's like, was I peddling? Was I a, a, a snake oil salesman, right? Was I just saying what needed to be said? Was I, was I a used car salesman, right? When I wanted to do this, was I just trying to manipulate you? He says, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? This is that logic argument, right? It's, it's, it's incredible to me how many people in this world want to take and use one form of logic to address a situation and abandon that logic when it comes to addressing something else, right, that they want. We're constantly looking for, they call it confirmation bias, right? We just want to read the sources and hear from the people that say what we want to hear, Now, as Christians, right, as followers of Christ, and maybe not everyone in the room in here today is a follower of Christ, as followers of Christ, though, we want to look to the Word of God, right? And if the Word of God confirms the behavior that we are uh, walking out, then praise God. And if it condemns the behavior that we're walking out, we should repent. We should turn our heart back towards Him. That should be the first place that we look for confirmation in our lives, So as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul says, look, we have not been changing our story because of what it does, right? We didn't have this one view here, and now it's not a popular view anymore. In fact, it's got some people pretty upset, so, you know, I'm changing my views so that you can be happy. He, he says, no, we didn't say yes and then say no and then come back and say yes. And we weren't saying yes to this crowd and then coming over here and saying no to this crowd, right? That would, that's a politician. I mean, maybe. <laughs> For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, 
was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. So the gospel does not change. The gospel is not something that is on shifting sand. Look, here's the thing. You may not like, you may not like something that, that I say, okay? I'll address that first. You may not like something that I say from the platform. Here's the thing. If you do not like something that I say from the platform, I would love to be able to sit down and have coffee with you and look at biblical evidence for why I am wrong. Because if I am biblically wrong, I want to get up and say, hey, guys, I missed this in Scripture. Because let me tell you something, that can absolutely happen, okay? All right? There are times where I've had conversations with people who heard me say something, and I just said it wrong, but we actually are all on the same page, right? That, that happens sometimes. Sometimes my thoughts can get uh, ahead of my mouth, or my mouth can get ahead of my thoughts, and it's just part of being Jim Simpson. It just happens, okay? My wife can testify to that, okay? What, what we cannot do, what we cannot do is go, I do not like that, I don't care for the biblical evidence. I'm going to do it my way and then call myself a follower of Christ. That's the, that's the danger to the world around us because the world around us goes, hold on, so being a Christian means you just you, you take what you like and spit out what you don't, right? It's, it's not a T-bone, right? It's a two-edged sword. So, yeah, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable swallowing, and there's not going to be anything to spit out in the middle of it. And he says, look, we have been so consistent. Now, this is the thing that I, I had a, um, uh, a, a, uh, a pastor tell me one time uh, from the Episcopal Church. This was like 15 years ago. And he was, he was telling, we were talking about one of these topics. I won't tell you which one. But we were talking about one of these topics that's socially unacceptable and that, you know, the church needs to keep their mouth shut on. And, and, uh, and, and he made this point. He said, he said, it's interesting to me how that the church has been teaching one view of this for thousands of years. And now churches are abandoning that teaching and they're beginning to, to say something different. And he said, you know, that makes Jesus a really poor pastor, right? Because he got it wrong for 2,000 years leading the church. And I thought, man, you are, that is good. Jesus has been leading us. He has been the one that spoke. He's the word that we are following. And if all of a sudden, like, well, thank God I'm here now because I've got it all figured out, right? What an insult to humanity that is, and what an insult to, to God and to His Word that is. And so there, there are times where the, the ch sections of the church get it wrong, definitely, right? We call those occults, and they are offshoots. But there is a consistent thread of humility, grace, and love, and dedication to the gospel and the word of God that has been present since the founding of the church at Jesus' ascension. And the church, there has been a lifeline that we can, just like we can look at the, 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 um, the, the bloodline from Jesus all the way back to Adam, right? We can look at a bloodline within the church, right, of, of faithfulness and consistency and dedication to the Word. And yes, there have been people who have called themselves Christians that have not acted like Christians. And it is happening right here. Paul is addressing the fact that there are people among you that reject the gospel and they call themselves followers. 
So the question then is, will you be a real follower? And he says that it is grace that gives you the opportunity to reevaluate, am I going to be dedicated to the Word of God? And so the testimony is also consistent among trustworthy men of God. So this is what he says. He says, I, he, name, he name drops, right? And he says, I've had these guys with me. They're people that you trust, people that you bring into your homes, and they're saying the same thing. And let me tell you something. Trustworthiness here is measured by the fruit of their lives. Measured by the fruit of their lives. Uh, I, I, we, have, we have a culture, right, inside of the church as a whole that allows for men and women of God, pastors, evangelists, whatever, to live in ways that are egregious to the gospel and not even have a lifestyle of repentance post, right? Uh, watching stories or watching clips of pastors from the platform announcing that they're divorcing their wives, and one guy said, and God told me I'm going to marry that lady over there, and then for people not to just run out the door and never show back up but keep attending the church. These are, these are problems, right? But they are not Christianity. They are not the real gospel. And so they may, there may be people that sit among us, right, that do not adhere to the gospel. Please do not measure the effectiveness of the gospel based on the fruit of their lives. But look to the fruit of the lives of those that hold to the gospel. Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of Scripture, they lay their lives on the front line for that. And this logic disproportionately applied is not logic. And so for you to go, yeah, I can be a Christian, but this is okay, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. I, I uh, was really consumed this week in my heart around some of the, the conversations with Roe uh, v. Wade and uh, what's been happening. And so there were a couple of notes that didn't make it into my slides. So I just, when we talk about logic, right, Part of the problem is that we will take scriptures that give us confirmation bias, and we do that by pulling them out of context, right? Romans 8, 28 is a really popular one. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so people will, you know, that's a bumper sticker. That's a link in my bio right there. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In John 14, Jesus says, anyone who loves me, anyone who is of me, obeys my commandments, right? So Romans 8.28 just says, man, God loves us how we are out of context, but inside of the context of being in the image of Christ, verse 29 says that because of that grace, we are obedient. Our lives change the way we think, the way we talk. Hebrews 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? This is one that I heard a lot growing up. Uh, he goes on in verses 2 through 40 to talk about the heroes of the faith and specifically, right, how they acted in dramatic fashion, 
not just simply through faith, right? They didn't just believe and go, hey, this is what I believe, but they put their lives on the line, some even to death. That's how bought into their faith they were. Uh, The last one that I'll bring up is Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that verse is a good verse. There's nothing that's not true about it. It follows a very long sermon in which Jesus is telling them how to behave, how to live their lives, right? Here's what I got to tell you is that is that the Word is filled with instruction on how Christians are to live their lives, how we are to walk it out. Wrapping up here, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is what he says. The spirit of God lives inside of me, right? Right? And so fruit of the spirit, one of those is self-control, right? We talked about earlier. But he says the spirit of God lives inside of me. And so my teaching is in line with the entirety of Christ's teaching, and I make no exceptions. And so what Paul is doing here at the beginning of this letter, probably the fourth letter that he's written to the church in Corinth, we call it 2 Corinthians, we talked about that last week. He is telling them, I consistently, I come to you the same every single time with the same gospel presentation and the things that I say and the teaching that I have, it does not change because it is not mine, it is God's. And so I can look into his word and I can gather what I need to gather for how I am to live my life. And, and so here's the, here's the thing that I end with, is that I hope that you are emboldened in your life to be filled with love and compassion, but to use your voice and your uh, position, right, to make truth known. Never, never, never has it been okay for us to walk out the door and commit acts of violence of our own discretion. That is not... That is not what we're called to do. That's not a biblical model, right? But it is also not a biblical model to sit there with our mouths closed in hiding, afraid to offend, right? So here's the problem is that most of the time, we don't know what we're talking about, so we don't say anything. And so Paul says, I've been saying these things, but they are the same things that God said. They're the same things that come from the Word of God. So if you don't know what you're talking about, the invitation is Go and find out what it is you need to know so that you can talk about it. Do the research. Study. Show yourself approved so that you can be engaged in the conversation with more than just platitudes and emotion, but really birth out of the faith that you hold as a follower of Christ. So let's stand to our feet. Yeah, I did pretty good. It's 1210. I preached that whole sermon really quick. I, I'm really passionate about this stuff. You know, my, my, uh, my aunt, uh, they told her that her, her daughter was going to be born with a, uh, she, she, she would not live, and that it posed a great risk for her to carry the pregnancy to term. And, of course, she did carry the pregnancy to term, and uh, the doctors were wrong, you know? Well, either the doctors were wrong or God did a miracle. Either way, uh, you know, 
it was their only child, you know, the only one they were able to have, and they would not have had that child. Um, you know, we, we had a, a well, we, we walked through two miscarriages, uh, and uh, when Zoe was born, I mean, the doctors told us it was hopeless. Guys, they were telling us in the, in the, in the first 72 hours, doctors set me down and talked to me about, uh, about the types of medicines that could help uh, our child live a trans lifestyle. 72 hours, like we're fighting for life and they're saying, like, you get to decide right now whether you're going to have a boy or a girl, right? That's, that's madness to me. Like, I, I sat there. I, I reflect on it constantly. Like, like, we're in the midst of calling ourselves Christians, right? And, and what am I going to do? Am I going to abandon my faith in the moment because uh, I'm in a difficult situation, right? Or because somebody's telling me something different? And that's what Paul's doing. Paul says, man, y'all... Like, I'm gone. I can't be here all the time. There's no Skype for me to video myself in on, right? And at the end of the day, you're listening to what other people are saying, and they are abandoning the Word of God. These are the same people who would tell me and Carmen that they were Christians and that they attended church. But then on the other hand, they would abandon godly principles. And we, we would just walk in every day, and we would pray, and we sought God's face, and we prayed hard prayers, man. I'm telling you, we'd pray at night. We would say, and I say this all the time, but we would pray, God, you tell us that we can come and ask for healing. You tell us that we can ask for a miracle. That's what we're doing, but we also trust that you see what we do not see, right? And so we trust you, God. We trust you. Those were hard prayers. Doctor pulls us over one day and says, every time y'all walk into the to the Nick unit, all the nurses stop working and start staring at you guys and start talking among themselves. Uh, he says, I just, I go to church. I've gone to church my whole life. I just, you're not being reasonable. God's not going to show up in, in your child's life. Well, the doctor, I, man, I'm glad you go to church, but you, you ended up being wrong, you know? And I, I don't understand the hand of God. You know, if I did, I would duplicate it. That would make me God, and I'm not capable right? I don't have all the answers. I don't know why, we, why God allows us to walk through difficult things, but Paul says that, that God allowed him to get near death so that the only person he could rely on was the one that defeats death. So, do not, do not think about difficult situations as being like things are over. Push your faith to Him. Paul says, put it back into the Word. Put it on the right gospel. Let that grace be re-extended to you. That grace is extended to you again today. That same grace, right, that you may have heard over and over in your life, it is re-extended to you today. Receive Him. Accept Him. And, and then the other side of that is change. Do the hard work and change the way that we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much, God. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for small victories. Lord, we walk through moments of defeat. God, sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. What we want is for your will to be done. Lord, my prayer is that as followers of Christ, we would rely on your word. We would not be discouraged when people who do not love you or serve you do not rely on your word, but that we would be encouraged that our lives are shaped and patterned differently. Lord, we love you. 
We love you, we love you. Lord, as these conversations around life begin to make their way back into states, as local representatives begin to have the conversation, Father, I pray that there will be more and more that, that choose alternatives, create opportunities for life to win. Those, those children that you designed, that you brought, that you have created, that they would know life. I pray that tempers would be even, that they would be uh, kept, that we would have healthy discourse and conversation as a nation. I pray that those that are filled with rage and hate and anger right now, God, that they would be met with love and peace and grace. Father, we pray for safety as we just see people publicly calling for violence. We are surrendered to you. We love you and praise you. In your mighty name, amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you need prayer, our prayer ministry teams are in the back. We want to pray with you. That grace being re-extended, it goes beyond intelligence and what man comes up with, all right? Uh, so go allow us to pray with you. It's a biblical uh, process. We want to be able to encourage you, exhort you, and take your need before God. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, we'll see you next Sunday. As always, go change your world.
same voice that moved upon the water says come drink and have your fill singing the stillness I can hear you whisper calling to me and deeper still